Fearless Flight podcast. It's James here, and today again I'm joined by Grant. How are you, Grant? Yeah, I'm good, James. Thanks very much for the introduction. We are going to have an interesting podcast because we're just going away today from the basics of flying and having a talk about what you folks see in the cabin with regard to the food and fluid intake. So that should be quite interesting. Last week's podcast, we talked about the basic controls, which manipulate the aircraft through the air. And as I say, this week, uh, just going off piste a little bit, but to talk about more of what you see in the cabin with one of our cabin crew. And that'll lead us nicely into talking about some really interesting stuff in the next podcast, which we'll talk about at the end of this one. Yes. So as Grant said, we've got an interview with a member of a cabin crew at uh, your airline, uh, which we're going to hear from next. And then we'll get back to you after you've listened to that interview. Unfortunately, I wasn't available to interview uh, myself due to the time zone difference. But Grant has done a lovely interview. And uh, after that, we'll have a little discussion about what she said and anything else about the cabin as such. Yep, that's good. So my interview was with Jody. She's one of our seniors at work. She's been doing this for 14 years. So hello, Jody. Here we go. So Jody, welcome to the Fearless Fire podcast. And we're talking this time about uh, the cabin. And you are with the airline that I work for. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been working as cabin crew? 14 years now, Grant. 14 years. Yes. 14 years. So you've yes. come up from the bottom of the ranks and cycled through. Um, the position you're in, for our listeners, we have a number of different levels in the airline, starting at Persa, going down through other ranks. You're, I think you're the second highest one in the cabin now, is that yes, right? Yes, I am. I'm a cabin supervisor. Okay. So which cabins do you look after? Well, it depends on the day. Uh, we come to a briefing each day, and usually in this company, it goes by either seniority or the person like assigns the person before the duty a a cabin. So the most senior will usually choose the cabin with the least amount of customers. <laughs> so, and, or it just depends on the service as well. So one day I can be working in business class and other days I can be working in economy. We don't have a cabin supervisor in our first class cabin because that is the person's role. Yeah. I think you, you guys, if we do a layover, you end up, you do one sector as economy and then one as um, business. Generally. Usually, yes. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they don't have to swarm. Okay. So if at pre-COVID times now we're talking about, if we had a full economy, we'll talk about economy because that's where most of us um, sit in an airline, um, how many people would we have an economy on a 777? A 777-300 fits 310 customers on a, in economy. And if you've got the 777-300-2 class, it can fit up to 388 customers at one time. Right, so yeah, a lot of people. Yeah. So let's have a look at um, what goes on in the cabin with regard to the meal service because this particular episode is about the, the meal service and about some of the cabin equipment. Say an eight-hour flight with a departure from the Middle East mid-morning for, say, um, going with somewhere that goes eight hours, probably up to Tokyo or, or, or London or something like that. It's about a seven-hour flight. Um, how many meals or meal services would you do on that flight? So in economy, we would do two, two meal services. So depending on what time of the morning it is, if it's like a very early morning departure, it will be a, like a cold snack 
service. So if it will be like a small yogurt, some cold fruits, and a muffin. Now, if it's mid-morning, it will be something hot. So it will be a proper hot breakfast or possibly a lunch if it's after 10.30. And then about two and a half hours before landing, it if it's mid-morning, it will be something like an afternoon tea if you're going to the UK or into Asia, it will be like a hot lunch. Okay. So you're landing around 2 p.m. Okay. local time. So yeah. So those meals, the hot ones, are all, well, obviously all the meals are all pre-prepared on the ground. How many ovens have we got? In economy on a 777-300, you have six in the back galley yep. and then you've got two in the mid galley. Okay. So you've got eight in total. How many meals would there be in a economy class oven? One oven can fit 50. 50 meals. 50, okay. yes. Right, okay. So there's plenty of capacity is there a set time it, it takes for a meal to heat up? Like roughly, is it? I mean, we have like our uh, service charts that tell us how long it's supposed to take in theory. So it's about 25 to 28 minutes. And so you take these hot meals out and put them in the, in the in the trolleys that you take up and down the cabin. Are they all taken out at once or do you cycle them through to try and keep them warm or does the, uh, the, do the trolleys actually manage to keep them warm when you're distributing them? Okay, so we tend to pull out all the special meals first. So okay. customers who've got dietary requirements yep. or children's meals, they go out first. So usually there's someone, if it's a full flight on a trip seven, there'll be a mid-galley operator who's pulling out the first ovens. Okay, so each oven insert fits 25 and then the cart has 39. So, oh, so you take the whole insert out? Yes, you take oh, wow. the whole oven insert out, you stick it on top and then you put like a foiled cardboard cover. Oh, to keep it Keep it warm. Oh, very Yes, and that keeps the um, customers safe, the crew safe and the meals hot. Oh, that's good. So then they load 13 meals at the front of the cart. So after the special meals that have come from the back, those first two carts will come out and then from the back another 39 on each side will go out until all of your carts have gone out so a full triple seven 300 will be eight carts okay eight 310 carts. yes yeah. and how long will it take to do a meal service if the plane was completely full like to well, it depends on customer profile, mm. the crew's abilities and, you know, how long they've been working in the grade. I mean, if you've shoved a bunch of newbies mm. out there, mm. it, it can take, take ages, yeah. two and a half, three hours. Mm. But if you've got crew that are, you know, been doing it a while, two hours, um, depending on if they're drinking alcohol, yeah. soft drinks, it, it really depends. But a full one should not take any more than two and a half hours okay. with everything done, tea, coffee. and that. So you talked about like breakfast and and dinners, do we change our meals for the type of destination or area we're flying to? Yes, we do. So depending on the customer profile, so for Asia, you will have rice or a noodle dish and it will always have a Western dish. So places like Singapore that do have a lot of expats will always have a Western choice. Our Indian destination, always a vegetarian option with a meat and rice and usually it's chicken or mutton. If you go into any European or Australian destinations, you will always have two Western choices and our North American destinations uh, our customer profiles are from Asia so we will have Indian dishes and a vegetarian option as well okay um, yeah 
in the research I've done, just having a look at taste, you know, we do have our changes in our taste buds when we're flying. Do you know anything about that, or is it, are, the, are the meals prepared differently as opposed to what you prepare at home? Or? I, I think they are. From what I've also read, um, I've done. We have a catering tool with our company that oh, okay. has informed us there is, you know, extra, uh, I guess, additives added yeah. into, um, you know, thirty percent more reduction in your taste buds happens mm. on board. So yeah. salts and sugars are added and things like that. But uh, with our company, we do have options for customers to have like a low sodium option, yeah. bland meal, diabetic meals, things like that. So yeah. those meals are obviously not as uh, highly enhanced, additive. Enhanced. Yes, enhanced yeah, is yeah. the word. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Fluid intake. We our planes are very dry. The the triple seven is a very dry aeroplane, and the other planes, the, the the latest one, the seven eight seven, comes out. From my understanding, they actually put humidity into the air conditioning. But we don't do this here. Is drinking fluid important in an aeroplane? Very, very much so. So at like thirty thousand feet, what I've read that your humidity level is less than twelve percent drier than most deserts. Oh, okay. So yeah, this affects like your smell and taste. So this is back to also the food as well as by so much salt and, and sugars and things yeah. like that um, it, most of our customers are encouraged to drink water yeah. you know uh, we have a service that comes around in economy for every 45 minutes and, and crew are encouraged to make sure customers are hydrated uh, there's there's information on our air show that informs customers hydrate keep hydrating, keep, keep hydrating and um, yeah I mean when I personally fly at home, I will drink maybe a liter and a half water in a whole 24 hours. When I'm on board uh, on a 12-hour flight, I can drink up to three liters of water wow. quite quite easily yeah. without. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm. It is right. Yeah, that's interesting about the fluid intake. Um, let's have a talk about a few other things. Uh, emergency equipment in the aeroplane, it's scattered all over the aeroplane. The customers don't see any of the items really because they're all hidden away. What emergency equipment do we have on the aeroplane? So we've got everything from things that are supposed to help us in a situation, you know, touch wood won't happen, like a ditching or a crash landing in a jungle or a polar situation. We also have medical equipment that can help in uh, medical cases. And we also have, you know, fire extinguishers, uh, firefighting equipment, things like that. Yeah. Like gloves, special gloves. Yeah, we've got... yeah, a fire protective gloves, crash axe. Crash axe is used to go through the panels of the aircraft to find sources of fire. And then your fire extinguisher, like you yeah. have in your kitchen. So we have those. Um, we have different classes of fires that we're told to use. You know, class A fire, you'd use your, your water and things like that. And like as technology has advanced as well over the years, we've ended up with a lithium battery fire socket. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah. if you have a case of a, a phone overheating or a laptop overheating, and you just you can pop it inside there with using a fire gloves, and then it's it's taken to an area well away from the flight deck uh, to and away from customers to, to make sure that the, the lithium battery doesn't explode and yeah. cause any damage yeah. and things like that. So all that equipment, do, do you have to check it before we depart? Yes, we do. So we have a, a book and it's a manual on the aircraft and each position, each door, when you see the crew sitting there, behind them in little nooks and crannies and cupboards, they have equipment. So each station will have one halon to fight fire, one oxygen bottle that's used either for customers for medical situations or in a rapid decompression. 
They have a, I think, called a PBE, S6 PBE. This is a, a hood that is similar to what firefighters use, and they, they use that in an emergency on board to fight fires. So that's that's usually stored under a jump seat. Uh, they have equipment for a demonstration in case the safety video doesn't work. You have this yellow bag. It's called a, a shrack. It's used in a emergency, very emergency situation. If you had to exit the aircraft, you need to take this with you. This is going to help your your passengers that are going to be uh, you're going to be surviving with maybe in a jungle, things like that. So that's got things like that in there. We have like radio signaling devices, and they usually one at the front and one at the back of the aircraft, and that is in case of you know ditching in a, the sea. We've got little life rafts that come out the side of the, the slides, I guess, and you can attach this. And, um, so these can transmit up to like 60 hours and up to, four, I think, 48, I think it's usually on the triple seven. Uh, what else have we got? We have a big box of medical, like very medical drugs, like uh, strong drugs for very severe medical cases. Now, some of those are used for professionals. So if we have medical teams on board, they can, can use that. Or there's ones that we're also trained mm-hmm. for. So we go through like a six, seven-week course that teaches us for two weeks what, what we can use in those situations. Okay. The first aid is very important as part of yes. the training. And talking about that medical thing, it's a doctor's kid and also various first aid kits, which as passengers have probably heard sometimes an announcement from the cabin crew is there a doctor on board because we, we'd like to use those if the case is uh, looking significant beyond your capability. But what are other options have we got with a passenger who's got a problem that you can't assess with your training? What else could we do if we didn't have any medical personnel on the aeroplane? Okay, so our training is we take a what's called a sample from a customer or passenger in this case and we find out what they're actually suffering from so sample is like any first aid course that most people have gone to and you just get basic details of what their, their symptoms are if they got allergies medication have you had this before what have you eaten and how did this all happen? So we get this information. Usually what will happen is it will either be a language speaker that communicates with this person or a supervisor. So usually this role comes down to me. Then we go to the flight deck. We do have this uh, machine called Tempest. And the way I describe it, it's like a... It's like when you go to an ER and you get the, the checkup before you go in to actually see the doctor. So this one takes your blood pressure, temperature, it can take pulse rates. Things so like your vitals. Yeah, your vitals sign checkers. So you use this machine first on them, then you go to the captain and we have a, a service on the ground that is a medical clinic in our yep. home, home area and we contact them and we, we run all this information past them. So then we get connected to a doctor who, who will then maybe ask for additional information so it's it's always a very good idea to make sure you get the full details of what's going on and you need to also have the passengers seat number age sex and all that that needs to be that needs to be very clear to them so they will usually give you an answer within 10 to 15 minutes of what medication or what needs to be done to to assist that passenger right have all your outcomes been good or have you had any bad ones at all um i've had some diversions uh where i've never had anyone think pass away on me yes but that's what the doctor said, and yeah. we've had that before as well, where the recommendation is to land at an airport mm. quickly. Um, yeah, I can see that being the case, which is one of the, you know, if you can't use any equipment on board to fix it or there's no medication, that is the option you have to yes. follow through. Yeah. Yes. 
and and this is the thing you've you've got to be careful that you're you're giving the correct information because diversions cost a lot of money yeah. for airlines and uh, and and also you've got to protect that person's life so you've got to really know that you're doing the right thing yeah. when you yeah. when you have these conversations yeah. with the. So in 14 years, it's good to hear that there's been no negative outcomes. Just diversions are, diversions are mightily costly, but they're not the same cost as a human life. So diversion's not a problem. We're quite happy to do that. Oh, that's good. So speaking of diversions, back to flying. So this podcast is uh, for people that are nervous flyers. And have you got any advice for someone who's a nervous flyer? Yes. Go see your doctor before you get on a plane. If you're traveling by yourself, go and talk to the crew as you get on at the door. It happens to me once every few weeks that someone will say, like, what's the turbulence situation? And I will usually ask, are you a nervous flyer? And they'll say yes. And I'm like, I'll tell them the truth. Yes, the captain's told me this. This is going to happen. But it doesn't always happen. You know, you guys don't always get it right. And, um, yeah, you know, just I get their seat number, check on them through the flight. If the turbulence uh, seatbelt sign comes on, just come and check on them. So they're really looking at you to rely on you to see what your reactions are. It's all about our facial expressions. You know, just they see that your demeanor's calm. They're usually calm. But usually if if I've had some severe cases that – you know, it, it might be best to go see your GP and get some medication yes. to deal with that or travel with someone. Usually if you've got someone with mm-hmm. you, you can usually calm down. Is there anything else you want to add, Jody? No, or? thank you very much, Grant, for your time. So. Wonderful to talk to you. So that was Jody. It was very nice of her to give us the time to have a chat about what goes on in the cabin. I, I definitely learned a few things that I didn't know before. What did you think of the interview, James? Yeah, I thought it was really good. Having done quite a bit of study, well, leaning into this sort of topic here at uni, I knew quite a bit about the food and that sort of area, but not so much about the medical training they go through. So that was quite interesting for me, learning about the medical equipment they have on board and what they are actually trained to do and the uh, contact with the uh, doctors on the ground. We are going to interview another member of the cabin crew much later on in this series, and that'll be about their training. But people just see them as people walking around serving meals, but there's a heck of a lot of training involved, and they're kind of like a jack of all trades from firefighters to medical staff. And they're also helping us in other areas, such as when we're doing de-icing, turbulence, all types of areas. They're very well trained, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's a lot more to them than what you see. And most people, as I say, just see them walking around and making sure their seatbelts are done up and doing safety yeah. demonstrations and food. But there's actually a hell of a lot more to the cabin crew and the training that people are aware of. Yeah, they do get a bad name often from the public of just being sort of glorified waitresses. But when you hear about the training they go through, it does sort of open you up to really how much they do have to train, how they do do it. They have a lot of skills in a lot of different areas, which some people specialize in their career. And they know quite a bit about multiple careers as practically. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And we will talk about them and their training in another episode, but much further on. Anyway, so in addition to having a chat with Jody, we did a little bit of a research ourselves here and going on to like meals, which is something that you as the passenger will likely have, especially on a long flight. Basically, all meals except a very few companies, uh, some of them in their first class, uh, they'll actually prepare them there. But the majority of meals, I'd say 99.9%. They're all prepared on the ground and they not only vary with the class and the airline you fly with, but also the the flight you're doing, as Jody said. So the cuisine's orientated towards the departure country or the destination country. And also a lot of people are not really aware 
that you can pre-order meals. So it's always worth sometimes having a look at your airline and seeing if they do offer that there because you can pre-order yeah. particular dietary meals for people that have those requirements. I feel like, yeah, a lot of people, especially in the last sort of 10 years with the internet, have started pre-ordering meals a lot more just because of you read a lot when you read a lot of sort of aviation blog style posts of people who do a lot of traveling and they often will pre-order meals firstly because as Jody said they uh, get fed earlier and uh, secondly often you they'll be ordering vegetarian and what have you just because meat has obviously got quite a bad reputation from some incidents you'll discuss later on as you're saying it also varies by the time zone uh, i think jody mentioned that in the podcast i believe she did yes obviously you don't want to be having a full dinner at six in the morning having said that some airlines such as Qantas, have started doing some research into instead of preparing it for the departure airport so if you get on a plane say out of here in auckland and you're flying to la and it's like an eight in the morning flight you'd think you'd be having breakfast and at the moment they would serve you a breakfast but uh, they're changing it up to try and uh, combat jet lag and there's quite a bit of research into instead of going with the departure time zone change it to the arrival time zone so you get on and you might be eight in the morning but you have a dinner and then they'll dim all the cabin lights and those are just some of the interesting sort of areas of research that are going on into combating jet lag yeah through just editing food and what they do in the cabin an airline wants to protect its reputation as well. So not only are they thinking about how it's, how the meal is going to affect you, that they generally employ a, a chef to design a menu. And the chef will take into account at the higher altitudes uh, that a cabin's at, say, five to 8,000 feet, that our taste buds are altered. And as a result, the food can taste a bit dry and flavorless. So tests have shown that the perception of saltiness and sweetness can drop by as much as 30% at high altitudes. And also the low humidity in the cabin, it can dry up the nasal passages and decrease senses, which are essential for tasting flavors. So our chefs will design the menu and ingredients with this in mind. So that's uh, really interesting how they go about that. And as I say, coming back to what you said before about the food safety, there was a mass food poisoning incident and in, I think it was 1992 when they had a shrimp uh, which was tainted with cholera on a South American flight. Now, at an event like this, it's, it's extremely costly to not only the airline's reputation, but ultimately the financial bottom line. So catering firms and airlines, they've worked together over the years to provide industry guidelines for catering. And there's also a World Food Safety Guidelines for Airline Catering Guide. It's available free of charge if you're really bored from the International Flight Service Association. So there is that reputation and you can pretty much be guaranteed the standards of the food hygiene and the way the cabin crew look after it is of a very high standard. You don't really hear of too much food poisoning these days because obviously with social media, if someone got food poisoned, it'd be all over the internet within a few hours of them tweeting it or posting on Facebook or what have you. Yeah, as you say, airlines are very serious about their food because if you get food poisoning off an airline, it's, you're not going to really want to go back to them. So. No, that's yeah, right. And that was the case in uh, 1992. I think it did a lot of damage to that airline. Hey, so uh, talking about the cabin, and we just mentioned briefly why it's so dry. So the air is dry uh, because we're bringing air from outside the cabin. And basically, the air is very dry at altitude. So there's very little moisture in it. And we also sometimes, especially at low level, the air conditioning system will actually remove more moisture from the air conditioning. So 
from an aircraft systems perspective, dry air it reduces corrosion in the instrumentation and the aircraft structure as well. It also can uh, lessen the chances of condensation, which in itself can cause problems, you know, having water running down the inside of the cabin. Having said that, uh, the later model aircraft, to my understanding, I'm not technically aware of the actual systems, but I'm sure from my research is a humidifier system which actually increases the humidity levels and um and i think that's perhaps a 787 yeah, Airbus altitude is also a few thousand feet lower yeah so that's got to be better yeah seven down to four thousand or something like that yeah the reason why they can increase the humidity is generally the construction of the fuselage is now a carbon fiber which is probably less susceptible to corrosion from moisture and the instrumentation is probably a lot better and allows for an increase of the humidity so as humans we ideally like around 30 to 65 percent humidity uh, we like the humidity because it's good for our skin it stops our eyes drying out however the aircraft cabins are around about 20 to 30 percent so that that's way outside our comfort zone. Um, so as a result, our mouth and nasal passages dry out and you also might start to get itchy eyes from reading or watching a screen. As you said before, James, the uh, Boeing 787 and the uh, A350, they're both a lot more modern aircraft and they do run the cabin pressure a lot higher than what say the Boeing 777 is and as a result also and the type of structure they have they're running at a higher humidity so they are apparently more comfortable to fly them. So you need to keep hydrated and we should really be drinking lots of water on a flight to replace the moisture we're losing in our bodies and really avoid too much alcohol. Um, that's why as a pilot drink water at work. And you heard from Jody, her water intake goes up significantly whilst at work compared to being at home. So if anyone you want to listen to, listen to Jody. She knows best. So in summary, what we've learned from this podcast, we've heard from Jody, who is senior cabin crew member. So her advice you should probably take, whether it's to do with water. She's also discussed how the meal service is conducted and what thought process goes in sort of behind why they uh, do meals when they do and what food they're doing. She's also gone and discussed the cabin safety equipment they have on board and also the medical training they go into. So next time you're on board, definitely show the crew a bit more appreciation because they aren't just glorified waitresses. They really are, as you mentioned, the jack of all trades when it comes to uh, knowing uh, many, many skills and different areas of expertise. She discussed yeah. how uh, the food tastes. And then we also just had a little discussion there about food hygiene and obviously why there's the chance of getting food poisoning on aircraft is so, so slim because companies do want to keep a good public sort of face. And also the, the, the big one, yeah, hydration. Hydration's the big thing. Uh, you see a lot of people, they have their bottles taken off them at security. I'd just empty the bottle out and even just take an empty bottle on the aeroplane with you because there's water fountains on them. And make sure you keep hydrated. That's the most important thing. Do take an empty water bottle. That is a good point. Uh, you do have taps on board to fill up water bottles. So. Yeah, yeah. The next episode. So we're going into weather. Now, there's weather's quite a large topic. I've broken it down into three different episodes, and the first one's just going to be about turbulence. The one after that, the episode will talk more about the clouds because we get a lot of information from clouds. And then the final part, the uh, third episode of weather will be about extreme weather so we'll be looking at things like icing and thunderstorms strong winds and all that so yeah that's going to be interesting but the first one turbulence is a big problem with people with a fear of flying it seems to trigger many anxieties so we're going to talk 
in depth about turbulence. We're also going to look at how we work with the cabin crew, levels of turbulence, what we expect of the cabin crew, what they expect of us to give you an idea that turbulence is something that is nowhere near as bad as you perceive it to be. I liken it to probably driving over cobblestones in a car. Fair enough. How does that sound, James? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's not dangerous. I personally like it, but I know a lot of people out there don't. But we'll uh, get into it next episode. Yeah. So thank you very much for listening to us. I hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to you joining us on the Turbulence episode, the next one. That's a goodbye from me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Slightly less technical than the others, but still interesting to learn about. Anyway, yeah, goodbye.